Well, good morning, Celebration Church, all of our campuses, those joining us online. Good to have you with us here today. If we could all stand up together wherever you're at, let's all join together. Let's say this. This is what we believe here at Celebration Church. Let's all join together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good to have everyone here today. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Bob, one of the pastors here at Celebration Church, and it is good to have everyone with us. I wanted to give you a quick update. We had our legacy offering last week on Sunday, and let me just say you guys are an incredibly generous church. Thank you so much for giving, and let me just encourage you as we head into the end of the year, just to continue to give and be generous. We're making an impact in ways that are just phenomenal. I uh, was just talking with Peter, our partner in Myanmar, and uh, he said that this Christmas, the outreach that we're helping to support financially that they'll be able to do, they're expecting more than 3,500 people on the property of Love Children Home for their outreach. And last year alone, over 300 people were baptized at that service and accepted Jesus Christ for the very first time. So not, not only that orphanage, but also the different church planners that are going out from that network. There's going to be 22 more Christmas outreaches that take place because of what we're doing. Uh, we also heard from our partners in India, our church planters there. They're in these extremely remote villages, and last, last month alone, they baptized 14 people that heard about Jesus for the very first time. This is very cool stuff that we're doing. So thank you for giving. Thank you for making an impact, not only around the globe, but things we're doing right here in our backyard and throughout our nation. You are leaving an incredible legacy, so thank you. Uh, we did want to let you know that on Friday afternoon, our uh, lead pastor, Mark Gunger's wife, Debbie, went on to be with the Lord. She's in the presence of Jesus here this morning, and uh, we love her dearly, and Pastor Mark, and uh, we wanted to be sure to let you know about the Celebration of Life service that will be taking place this Thursday that you're invited. The visitation is from 1 to 6.30 p.m., and the service will follow at 7 p.m., and uh, just take time uh, throughout your week, throughout your day to be just lifting up Pastor Mark and uh, his kids, Leslie and her husband Ross, Phil and his wife Kirsty and their six grandkids, lift them up in prayer during this week and during this time. One thing's for certain, it says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him and this morning. Debbie is in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So this morning, we have a very special guest. Uh, Pastor Mark's brother, Ed, is with us, and he's going to be bringing our message. He's a very dear friend of all of us. Let's all put our hands together. Welcome, Pastor Ed, here this morning. 
Yabba dabba do, man. <laughs> I love you, Don. Grace to you. Good morning. Historically, Advent, which started December 3rd this year, has been the start of the Christmas calendar, the Christian calendar. So, Happy New Year. Um, before I jump into the thoughts that I wanted to share with you about Advent uh, this morning, let me first express our gratitude as a family for um, all the ways that this community has supported Pastor Mark and Debbie and their family through these years of struggle that she has had with cancer. This was a really sad week for all of us. Um, Deb was one of the uh, extra good ones among us. The best part of this is her struggle is over um, as far as physical pain is concerned. And whatever God has in store for those who trust him in terms of afterlife, she's sharing in that. And we love that. The worst part is that everyone here who adored her has to figure out what life looks like without her in their walkabout lives. You know, Mark and Debbie have had so many miracles over the years, including miracles of healing. This time, uh, that was not to be. The miracle this time was one of perseverance and grace through some really dark valleys and through what make many curse God, but they didn't. They blessed him. They celebrated life. They celebrated love to the end. There was one little light moment this week. Deb had slipped into that stage where people um, who are actively dying uh, go into where they're almost in a constant dream state. And at one point she popped her eyes open and looked at Mark and said with some astonishment, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and, and, you know, Mark, God bless his soul. <laughs> he said, well, that's not exactly the miracle we were looking for. <laughs> uh, you know, I wish there were clear buttons to push and levers to pull that uh, kept us more in charge of what goes on in our lives. But those don't exist. And even when Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, um, in the midst of, the, of everyone's lives, not everything went well. In fact, just a few uh, months later, there was some very dark things that happened. You remember it started out with Jesus' appearance and the angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. But then... Matthew 2 says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave the orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. In the vicinity who were two years and under, killed them all, murdered them all. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then it was said, what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Now remember, this is after the light of the world has come into the world. Jesus has come into our planet. And Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping 
and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. When Jesus comes into your life, when Jesus comes into my wife, life, lots of good happens, but not everything works out. Sometimes there's deep loss. We tasted that this week. In spite of what occurs, though, we are called to trust. So please pray over the coming weeks for the family and those who are closest to her. Pray for Mark. You know. <laughs> Deb was the equivalent of the bumpers they use for kids when they bowl. <laughs> help, help their game stay in the lane, you know what I'm saying? I'm not sure that the world is ready for unbumpered Mark. But, you know, that's your problem. Let's stand together. <laughs> Would you stand? We want to read this text. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. Uh, I'm going to read from um, this text in Psalms. It's Psalm 85. And it's, it's, it's a messianic psalm, which means it's predictive about Jesus. Um, it's so interesting. When the early church fathers, the disciples themselves, um, they, they plunged into what we now call the Old Testament and the, New, and the Psalms are part of that. And they were, the reason they did so with such fervor is they were looking for Jesus in it. Because if you remember, it was Jesus who told them. I remember the text from John, it said, he told the Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you possess eternal life. But then he says, these are the scriptures that speak about me. And then he said later, if you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. So when the disciples began to plunge into the Old Testament post-resurrection, they're really looking for Jesus. It was kind of a Where's Waldo campaign, right? And so they would find these Psalms and find these texts. And this is one of them they found and said, that's, that's really talking not just about what was going on then. It was predictive of Christ. So we call it a messianic Psalm. So let's listen to it. Psalm 85 Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. And that great term, selah, which means to just stop and think about that. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. The glory, that glory may dwell in our land. And then watch this. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Amen? Go ahead and be seated. Now, when we use the term Advent, it means appearing. Before Jesus' first Advent, the Israelite nation longed for centuries for his appearing, the appearing of Messiah. And part of what we're asked to do during this season as we're thinking about Christmas Day is we're supposed to kind of try to imagine that entering that longing that Israel had for the, the appearing of Christ. We're asked to use our imaginations to do that. Now, the reason I, <laughs> I think that most of us only use our imaginations to worry or to sin with, 
right? Or to hate people with. <laughs> but there is a sanctified imagination that we're called to have. In worship, we're supposed to use it. In Advent, we're called to use it to grasp that longing that Israel had for the appearing of the Messiah. And then we're to parlay that longing into our longing for the second return of Christ. That we're supposed to imagine that event that Jesus sometime is going to come back. It's a project that's designed to mess with us. We read in 1 John chapter three, it says, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, that's Advent, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in themselves, all who have this hope, this imagination, this daring to think about it, purify themselves just as he is pure. There's something about it that makes your heart stand up. During Advent, the church cultivates this kind of spirit of expectation, of anticipation, of preparation, right? Uh, for hope and peace and joy and love, those are the themes of Advent. And all things that come to us as we imagine the appearing of God in the earth, right? These are the things that are formed in us. These are the things that make us cry, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus' first appearing was seen by John as the true light that enters the world and lights up every person. But what if the appearings of Jesus are supposed to be these, an ongoing reality from the first appearing to the to the last appearing. I mean, what if we were to hope for little mini appearings, <laughs> little mini advents uh, in between? I mean, shouldn't we anticipate that every time we gather? Every time we worship him? Every time we talk about him and the spirit bears witness in our hearts of something that we're hearing and the text says that he writes in our hearts just like he wrote in the stone, in the, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, that under the New Testament that he's writing on our hearts that somehow we should expect that when we listen to preaching or when we're talking together about God, that we should look for the appearing, how God sort of nudges in and shows up. It may not be grandiose and, the, and, and huge, just like Bethlehem was kind of a tiny deal. Not many people knew about it. But that kind of mini appearing of that Advent, I think, should be anticipated every time we gather, every time we come to the Lord's table. There should be an expectation that we'll see and taste Christ in our midst. Additionally, I think that many Advents are supposed to happen through us when we go into our everyday world in the rough and tumble of life. That I think that we're to be like, we're to be like the Christmas lights, right? That, 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 and, and the decorations that fill the darkness, that somehow we're to you know, show Christ as light through how we live, through how we interact with other people. Uh, this suggests that we, the body of Christ, are to be like Christ to the world. Um, little samples of Jesus, right? <laughs> kind of a silly example, but you know, when I, you go to the mall, sometimes you go by those places that they put little food on a stick, right? And they kind of pass it out. They're giving you samplers and hopefully inviting you into the meal. I mean, what if we're to be like little sticks of Jesus kind of thing? little mini samplers of that when we walk in kindness and when we forgive and when we're leading into people and we just are who Christ would be in our context that people go, I want more of that, right? I want to lean into that. So light samplers in the stick in darkness. What does that look like? 
What would that look like? The portion of our text I want to focus on is in, starts with verse 9. Surely salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. This is certainly Jesus, but I'm suggesting that this is, that the most that some people will ever see of glory in this world is us. That somehow we're to be representing him close to people and showing him, showing them his glory. But this is the part I wanted to unpack a bit. Mercy and truth are met together. Somehow in Jesus Christ, he puts these together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Somehow in Jesus, these two were joined together. What's odd about this is that the idea of mercy and truth meeting is a little confusing for us because truth is so black and white. It just is what it is, right? And mercy is so not black and white. It's like 18% neutral gray. <laughs> so how in the world do these fit together? How can you be merciful and truthful at the same time? In Jesus, he figures that out. And not only that, righteousness and peace are kissing. Righteousness, you know, it's odd because righteousness, the very idea that we have to do everything right, I've got to do everything right, it doesn't naturally get along with peace. Because peace has the kind of idea, at least part of it has the idea of rest in it. And we don't usually associate rest with righteousness. Because righteousness or doing right is hard work. It's not resting. And righteousness often results in conflict, not peace. Here are a couple of examples of that. This is 1 John 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and he murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were what? Righteous. See, by the very fact that Abel was righteous, got him killed. There's no peace in here. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Why? Because of your righteousness. See, when you act righteously, you often get in trouble with people. Peace eludes you. No kissing here. Another example of how righteousness seems to displace peace is in what it does in us. I mean, as you grow in righteousness from the time that you decided to be serious about your faith and you begin to say, what does that mean? And God, how do I surrender my life to you? He starts making things right in you. What ends up happening is first you start hating sin and hating wrong because you want to do what's right. Uh, Paul describes this kind of process and he calls it a kind of war, a kind of Tension. He says in Galatians 5, the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. And they're in this conflict, no peace. So that you're, you don't do whatever you want to do, right? The hatred of sin can really kind of cause this deep struggle within ourselves that is not described by the term peace. And by hating wrong, sometimes we can end up hating people who do wrong without trying to. We see this story in the story of the elder brother in the prodigal story, right? And we pick up the narrative. The son said to the father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the son said, but the father said to his servants, quick, pick the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his finger, saddles on his feet, bring the fat calf, kill it. And let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's fine. They, they are found and they begin to celebrate. But meanwhile, the older brother in the field he gets near the house, he hears the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied. 
And your father's killed the fatted calf because he's back safe and sound. And the older brother got angry and refused to come in. Actually, a lot of times that's what happens to us when we begin to, be, begin to become righteous. When we get around people who are not so righteous, we get mad at them. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but his, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, I've never disobeyed your orders. What is he saying? I've done what's right, and it's been hard, because when you do what's right, it is really hard to do what's right. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property and with prostitutes has come home and you killed the fatted calf for him, what's he doing? He's like, he's not righteous. He's hating on him. We see this same kind of impulse to hatred against people who are not righteous as we are in the story in Luke 6 with the Pharisees and Jesus is out with the disciples and they're on the Sabbath and they're, hard, they're picking grains of wheat and sticking it in their face. It's, they're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be doing that. Right, it's the Sabbath. It's not, it's not legal to do that. And Sabbath was big in this time, you know, in this time of history for the Jews, still is. But it says, what, what the, the story goes, on one Sabbath, Jesus was going into the grain fields and his disciples began to pick these heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands, eating the kernels. Some of the Pharisees say, now, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? See, when you get real righteous, you become real aware of what other people do that is wrong. And it can incite in you an anger, not peace. Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry, they were naughty too. He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what was not lawful for the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. See, see, notice that Jesus saw not just what people did or didn't do, Jesus saw needs. Jesus saw motivations before he saw the stupid things people did. This practice, looking at people before you see what people do, is how righteousness and peace make out. How they kiss. It'll change how you feel about people. There's a story that Stephen Covey tells. Uh, he's a writer, a business guy. He was on a uh, New York City subway. And uh, he had gotten on on a Sunday morning. There was nobody else on but himself and this older gentleman sitting just a little bit down on the bench. And um, the old gentleman, he's in his 80s, is reading a newspaper. He said the next stop or two, a man with his two young boys got on the train. And the train's moving along, the subway's moving along, and all of a sudden the kids get up and they're getting a little rambunctious and they're running back and forth in the, in the, in the car and Covey's kind of looking and looking at the dad. The dad looked glazed over. It was pretty early in the morning, but he thought, come on, do something about your kids. Well, after just a little bit, they started roughhousing, bumping into each other. And at one point they bumped into each other and one of the kids fell back into the lap of the elderly gentleman, knocked the paper out of his hands, completely startled him and Covey had had enough. He had a Popeye moment. I can't take it no more. And he said something to the man. He said, sir, would you please get your kids under control? The guy kind of snaps out of it. He said, he said, boys, boys, come on. And got him seated next to him. And he looked at Cove and he said, I, I am so sorry. He said, we, we um, just got back from the hospital. He said, we were up all night. He said, my, my wife just passed away. And Covey said, 
without any effort on his part, he immediately had peace about this situation. See, sometimes people do things not because it's obvious to us, but because of deep pain that they're going through or have gone through. And sometimes one of the ways that we let righteousness and peace kiss is when we lean into the fact that some people are hurting among us, that we're in a broken world. Righteousness alone, being right, can make you insufferable. And if you are, you will not light up the world this Christmas. You'll just add to the darkness. You will contribute to the suck. (laughs) But the promise in our text is that mercy and truth meet together, that righteousness and peace kiss each other. There is a way to be truthful and merciful. There is a way to be both righteous and foster peace. So how does that work? I I, I could talk about a bunch of things, just have a couple minutes, but let me tell you two things or two ways I think that can really happen. Number one is, Decide to do what's right, but refuse to judge people for not doing what's right. Right? I mean, I love to judge people. (laughs) And just straighten them out. I mean, truth is, for many years when I encountered people, I mean, my only interest was to judge them. You know, try to figure out who they are. Are they Christian? Right? Are they the right kind of Christian? Uh, Are they tongue talkers or ghost-free evangelicals? (laughs) Do they have faults? Then I need to point those out. Of course, that's my calling. Righteousness and peace were not making out on my watch. (laughs) There was no kissing going on. It was back in the early 80s when God began to show me that I was an idiot. (laughs) That my job was not to assess people through these various lenses I wore or saw through or looked through at them. But I was called to love people. I wanted to judge people. It felt natural. I felt good at it. And honestly, I didn't like people all that much. There's one guy that wrote something that just resonated in my heart. The more I get to know some people, the better I like my dog. This is the verse that wrecked me. This is out of 1 John 4. It's a horrible verse. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, that person's a liar. You don't love God. For anyone who does not love his brother who he sees cannot say he loves God who he doesn't see. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What he's saying here to us is that the measure of our love for God is not by how much we pray, how loud we pray, how long we pray, how loud we sing, how many times we come to church. The measure of our love for God is in how much we love other people in our world. Amen. It gets worse. (laughs) Which is to say we only love God as much as the person we love the least. Ouch. We only love God as much as the person we love the least. This sucks on so many levels. (laughs) Begin working on loving people. 
I mean, instead of reacting to people, judging them, practice putting the face of Christ on them. This doesn't come naturally, obviously, but if you listen, you'll hear the Spirit wooing you into these kinds of practices of love. Remember James said, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning that you should love one another. This is not new to you if you're a Christian. This is the first evidence, John says, of the fact that you've crossed out of darkness into light, that you have this sense of wanting to jam mercy and truth together, wanting to put righteousness and peace together, not walking around holier than thou, not holding people hostage to the stupid things they do. You had that at the beginning, but somehow we lose that. Listen to your heart. Are you, are you a loving person with your neighbors, with your coworkers, in your friendships, with your kids, even when they're adults? To your parents if they're alive. Are you giving them space to be wrong? To not have it together? To your spouse? See, if you listen in real time, you'll, you'll end up with some ghost stories, holy ghost stories, of how God will nudge you to be a more loving person. And then lastly, remember that loving... <laughs> isn't just a human thing. I mean, we come up with some love, but there's a, kind, there's a supernatural kind of love that will, that will up your natural love. It will help you win the race. It will give you an extra that you need to be in a hard world with hurting, broken people. Romans 5.5 5 says that, and hope does not disappoint us because God himself has poured out his love We've got his love. We share in his nature. His love's been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Don't try this at home on your own. There's this kind of sense that if you open up to God, that God will allow his love to come through you. I have a great story. Uh, a Lutheran pastor friend in St. Louis, Missouri, back in the days of the Lutheran, the, you know, the charismatic renewal, Catholic churches, Lutheran churches, they had one of those services going on every week in the basement of this Lutheran church in St. Louis. And this guy, the Lutheran pastor, showed up you know, every once in a while he didn't run it because it was lay driven and it was down in the basement of the church. So he'd show up as much as he could. He traveled a lot, spoke a lot, but he went down one night, he's down there and he's standing and they're doing their charismatic service and he looked next to him and there's this guy standing there, you know, kind of watching, not really entering in much. And after, the, after everything was done, he looked at the guy and he said, hey, he introduced himself and he said, uh, so how long have you been coming here? He said, oh, my wife dragged me here every week. He said, well, he said, do you like it? He said, no. He said, well, why not? He said, it's all the hugging. <laughs> so everybody hugs everybody. So you men even hug men here. He said, I just don't like people. That's what he told the guy. And the pastor goes, really? He said, he, said, he said, how would you like to learn how to let God love people through you? So you don't have to fight with that in your own head. You know, what do you mean? He said, well, yeah, just God can... Love through you. You'd be like an instrument, like a vessel, right? You can love what God will love through you. So, well, how do you do that? He said, well, does your wife have any, like, he said, do you drive to work? He said, yeah. Does your wife have any music, like worship music or anything? That's all she has. So he said, well, this was back in the day of tapes, right? So he said, put, he said next time you, that for the next little bit, just put tapes when you go to work in that have this music, you know, the worship music on, and then just talk to God and say something like this. God, I don't love people, but I know you love people, and I'm okay if you want to love them through me. So just something simple like that. He said, I don't really think that'll work. He said, I don't know, let's try it. So anyway, a few weeks go by and, and the Lutheran pastor didn't go to those meetings that he was gone and he came down about a month later, six weeks later, he comes down the stairs to the basement and there's this guy at the bottom of the stairs hugging everyone that's coming down. 
And, uh, and he got to the bottom of the stairs and he hugged me. He said, do you remember me? And he said, well, I think so. He said, I'm the guy who doesn't like people. <laughs> he said, well, what happened to you? He said, I said, it's crazy. He said, I did exactly what you said. I put the music tapes in there and I said, God, I don't like people, but if you want to love people through me, that's okay. I'll, be, I can, I'll let you love people through me. He said, it just started, all of a sudden, he said, over time, he said, I just started, people at work, people around me, people here, I'm just loving all people. He said, I'm not loving. He said, don't misunderstand me. I still don't like people. <laughs> so something else is going on in me. Something else is going on in me. Something else is going on in me. Something else. See, what if this is the greatest calling for most of us who live out our lives in the everyday world as business people, as moms, dads, grandmas? I think this is central to our mission, not just to convert people, but to give them a taste of who God is and how he loves them. We're to be like these extensions of God to the world. I mean, here's a wild, wild west verse. It's the last verse I'm sharing with you. It's out of Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. What if he's saying to you, See, I have made you like God to that little jelly-faced toddler who thinks you're just a moon in his world. See, I've made you like God to that teen. I've made you like God to that neighbor who brings his dog over to your yard and does his business. <laughs> I've made you like God to the people you work with. I've made you like God to your weird uncle Frank. Act like God. We are God's hands, his feet, his face in the world. We're to be little mini advents of Christ's appearing. So happy adventing.